Chapter 21 Sunday Morning The tiny shutter to room six popped open much earlier than usual, before the morning clangor had rung. In a sign that the party might be over, the guard, nicknamed Ratface by the Americans, barked at them to get up. Ratface was not a Sunday substitute turnkey. He was a regular annex guard, also known to some Americans as Magoo, because he shared his nearsightedness and thick glasses with the 1960s American TV cartoon character. Meyer said, He was quite brutal. Uh, he had, uh, for a while, he carried a, a rubber strap, like a fan belt, that had been cut from a, a rubber tire. And if somebody did something that he didn't like, he would squat him right across the face. The only good thing about it was he wasn't very coordinated as far as any Ratface summoned Heiliger to the shutter. Heiliger was room responsible. He recalled, quote, It was light out. It was early morning hours, maybe 5.30 or 6. End quote. Ratface ordered Heiliger to go around the room, lifting mosquito nets, even as some of the Americans were emerging from their nets. Quote Heiliger, Finally, I pulled up others that had people in them, and I came to John's. Ratface asked me, Where are they? I said, they left. End quote. The shutter snapped shut. Boss said, When they opened our door up, they weren't sure who was gone. I think they saw all the evidence in the form. Dramisi and Atterbury had moved tiles and left the rope on the roof of their cell block and left Atterbury's metal loop and one of the camouflage blankets on the annex wall. McCustion said, Bach continues. Front door opens. All the heavyweights in the camp commander look around. There's like an old floor, you know, and everything. And they left. A guard returned with the room's daily ration of cigarettes. At the time, Baugh had again quit smoking in what had become an on-and-off-again habit, but he sat down and chain-smoked three on the spot. In room five, Mike McGrath recalled a similar scene. Bang! They open the door. They want a head count. Line up. We all get in line up and very carefully. They count every single one of us, which is unusual. And we know right away they got caught. Meaning the plot had been exposed, even if Dramisi and Atterbury remained at large. The camp leadership inspected room five as they had room six. Trotwin would later learn from other rooms that every annex cell had been similarly swept. As soon as they left, Troutman went to the wall and began tapping to room six. I anxiously uh, tapped on the wall. Did they go? I get the frightening word back. Hot, red. That was the code word. Uh, escape progress. And when I got that hot poop red response, that icy shiver went down my spine. 
Room 5 was not allowed into their courtyard for their morning cleanings and bucket dumps until probably around 10 a.m., Troutman said, hours later than usual. They immediately began trying to spread the code Hot Poop Red throughout the annex. He said, quote, we disseminated that to the rest of the camp as soon as possible, end quote. But in a decision he would later regret, Sunday morning was the first time Troutman sent any word of escape plans over the wall to the Americans in the zoo, not even the meaning of Hot Poop Red. Troutman said, The zoo did not know what that meant. They, they do nothing. That was my decision. McGrath said he sent word to the zoo on Troutman's behalf, using hand code to tell Red McDaniel in the zoo that two men had escaped. It is unclear whether he sent their names or any other information. Quote McGrath, That was the first time SROs in the zoo had heard because we in the annex had always thought it would never happen. End quote. He said he signaled that it may be their last communication for a while. Back in room six, shortly after the initial sweeps by senior camp staff, Meyer said Ratface returned. Ratface came in and looked at that hole in disbelief and then locked the door again and left. About 30 minutes later, uh, they came and they got, uh, I believe they got Bill and, uh, and Don Heiliger. A group of guards shoved Ba and Heiliger from room 6 across the courtyard to the one building that did not house prisoners, the same guard and interrogation building adjacent to the outhouse that the party dolls used to get over the wall. Quote Heiliger, When we walked up to the interrogation, we could see it. End quote. The party dolls had left a clear trail from cell to wall. The rope and missing tiles were still obvious on their roof. Dramisi and Atterbury's footprints and drag marks, likely from the chogi pole, crossed the muddy soil from their cell block to the outhouse. Any hope that they'd be gone more than a day before they were missed was gone before they got over the wall. Chapter 22. Recaptured. When Dramisi and Atterbury awoke, they knew the party was over. Dramisi said, The sun was up, so I, I, I can't tell whether it was late morning or early morning, and I think it probably was maybe mid-morning or something like that. The fields were literally flooded with people, and they were all carrying guns, and, and finally they came to the church, and we could hear them ripping down boards and going into the church, and uh, uh, almost got away with it. But this one kid decided that he was going to crawl in there. And so he crawled under the, uh, under the bramble bush and they came uh, looking for us. And it was obvious we were doing a pretty good job because we were hidden well. But he had to literally crawl in to, to see us. And finally he, he came upon us and screamed. And about that time we heard about a thousand or sounded like a thousand, maybe just a hundred bolts click guns charge and Ed said at that time uh, he said what do we do and I said nothing let's crawl out slowly so we crawled out real slow and and the guy who was a major he was really happy that uh, he was the, it was his unit that uh, had found it this point in the story is one of the few times in a 1999 afternoon of talking where Dramisi admitted any fault or mistakes he admits that he and Atterbury did not travel far enough or long enough. He later learned from his interrogators that when the guards discovered the escape, the NBA established a security perimeter about 10 kilometers around the prison. Dramacy said, What they would do is flood the area, uh, and we were caught 
if we had gotten out of that five or, or seven miles, well, then our chances would have been considerably greater because we, they would have been looking within that, that security perimeter. So if we stayed on the road, perhaps we would have been able to, to go further. Instead, they had gone off-road, across a waterway and fields, slowing their progress. They stopped an estimated three miles away from the annex before first light. Jermisi admitted, We lost track of time, and that's the thing that I equate to not being able to get out of that security circle. I think we were doing so much and so fast, we thought it was taking a lot of time, but it really wasn't taking that much time. Looking back at it now, we still had three or four hours of, of nighttime left that we could have certainly been able to get out of that security circle. So that was a big mistake uh, that we made, and that was uh, unfortunate, both in not taking advantage of, of the good disguises and being able to walk. They were loaded into an army truck and soon were back at the prison. Jermacy saw that they drove through the zoo's main gate, not into the annex. Jermacy said, we were in the truck together, and then once we got out of the truck, we were separated, and that was the last time I saw Ed, and, and we both shook hands and said we tried. It was the last time any American spoke to Ed Atterbury. Chapter 23, Breaking. By the time Atterbury and Dramisi were crawling out from the bushes a few miles away, some of their annex cellmates were already in as Ba used to put it, a world of shit. Heiliger said, quote, they got pretty heavy pretty fast with the irons, ropes, and screw cuffs, end quote. The irons fit around ankles, and the screw cuffs were crude handcuffs, a pair of W-shaped metal bands that screwed together with the prisoners' wrists between them. Both were draconian restraints devised by the French for small-statured Vietnamese prisoners. On larger American men, especially big men like the six-foot-four Ba, the often rusted metal was so tight it tore into flesh. The two small restraints also cut off circulation to the hands and feet that were swelling under the pressure. With their American prisoners thus manacled at bloody wrists and feet, the Vietnamese then applied the ropes. Ba recalled that these interrogators were not from the zoo or Annex's military cadre. He said, Guys from downtown came out to start working on us. English speakers who spoke perfect English and were mean. They broke my eardrums right away. They didn't like what I said right off the bat. Ba and Heiliger were in the two rooms of the only annex building not used as cells. But with every annex room now occupied, the other room six occupants were walked, one at a time, back to the zoo. Some, like Ba and perhaps Wilson, were put in the ropes immediately. Others, like Heiliger and Meyer, were not tortured on Sunday, but were held in nearby rooms. They think so they would have to hear their roommates' screams. The downtown NVA interrogators worked one prisoner at a time, leaving the others to listen and wait their turns. At least some of the Americans were left alone in unlocked rooms in a zoo building called the Auditorium. Although their hands were restrained in different ways, if at all, every man was in ankle irons. Locked doors were not needed. Meyer said, There was a theater in the room, and they took me to the bathroom of the theater. And uh, they put me in leg iron, left the door wide open. One interrogator after another uh, kept coming by and wanted to know what I thought about my life now. And uh, 
same way all night. The mosquitoes almost ate me up. There were a couple of rags in the corner. I got those rags wrapped them around my feet so the mosquitoes wouldn't bite me. And the, the guards saw that and they took those rags away from me. And perhaps the only bit of good fortune for any of the Room 6 men, Meyer was mistakenly fed a triple ration on his first day in the theater. He said, We were supposed to be on uh, bread and water. And uh, I think the first day I got three loaves of bread because the guards were all mixed up on the feet. I got three times as much as I was supposed to. Thaw remembered watching helplessly, hands bound behind his back, as the mosquitoes literally gorged themselves on his swollen feet. He couldn't feel his feet anyway. The leg irons had squeezed them numb. Once a mosquito's sucking proboscis was attached, the intense blood pressure was like drinking from a fire hose, he quipped. Your feet swell up, you get infected, and they swell up anyway, and there's a lot of pressure in them. Just go. And they'd fall off on the floor. And the best they could do was a high-speed taxi. I could, couldn't even get airborne. That's true. I could not even get airborne. Bach killed time alone by watching them struggle under the weight of his blood. Langell was one of the last men taken to the zoo. And I was in irons, hands behind my back, blindfold. First question, tell me about the PC. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Tell me about the party. You know, PC party committee was a code name we used for, for the whole field. Langell realized that men were breaking under torture already. They had it about six o'clock six o'clock in the morning on the next day. When they put Heiliger in the ropes again on Monday, the NVA knew even more. They took a break from breaking him for their afternoon siesta and left him untied. He was able to put his hand into a floor vent and flash Tapco to another room, most likely room two. He said he sent quote All is lost. They know everything because we had given up the fact that there was communication between the rooms, end quote. Communication from the zoo passed via multiple annex cells told Troutman that the party dolls had been recaptured, possibly even before Heiliger could alert other cells that the intra-room communications network had been broken. Troutman said, We also got the word real quick uh, from the zoo now that they saw a chief coming into the zoo with two guys that they presumed to be the two escapees. They soon heard horrible screams uh, coming out of the, the shit they went, went into while they were being tortured. Uh, so, so we knew that you know, they were caught, they were up, and, 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 and the hammer was coming down very heavily. Bob believed that his first break from the beatings, but not the ropes, was when Atterbury and Dramisi returned. He said, quote, I think it was mid-morning when they brought them back to camp because we were in torture, getting the shit kicked out of us in quiz sessions, and then everybody left. There was a lot of action in the camp and all the interrogators left, end quote. Meyer said he believed the party dolls were put into the zoo's auditorium in cells near him. They didn't bother me, I was in a, that room that I was in, right next to where I guess they were interrogating Dramacy uh, and uh, Atterbury. And I could hear them yelling and screaming at them. 
and I never could understand what they were saying. But the return of the party dolls did not mean their cellmates' ordeals were over. The men of Room 6 remained in irons and isolation. Heiliger recalled, quote, the worst torture was in the first three or four days, end quote. Boss said, quote, the torture would go on till you were screaming and begging for relief. Then they'd gag you. They'd stick a flip-flop in your mouth wedged in there. They'd tie you up like a pretzel, then leave you for a while, end quote. The North Vietnamese were not only breaking the Americans to learn every detail of the party and how they communicated room to room, they also were punishing the men of Room 6 for their support of the escape. Boss said, quote, the guards were very upset and vindictive because of the organization between the rooms, end quote. Langell said, Christ, we're in the ropes, seemed like all day long. That was a, the worst, severe punishments I recall. We didn't get any food. I didn't get any food or water or sleep for three or four days. I did have one guard in the middle of the third night uh, brought some water. Decades later, Lingell still expressed gratitude at that one guard who showed him any compassion. He joked, If I could have, I'd brought that son to tell him. At night, the guards worked at keeping their bound captives awake. Boss said, quote, you couldn't even think anymore. You'd sit on the floor on irons, and if you fell over and tried to get some sleep, they'd kick the shit out of you and prop you up, end quote. One night, Ba hallucinated that he was talking to John Wayne. Although every prisoner was tortured and abused, and some more than others, not all of the Room 6 prisoners were questioned about the escape. There was no need, Meyer believed. Quote, they took Bill and Don and started asking a list of questions they wanted answers. They worked on them until their answers agreed. End quote. The North Vietnamese interrogators were expert at using one prisoner's confessions against others. For two weeks, they systematically broke the Americans. Each day's interrogation for every man included new sets of very specific questions related to the escape or camp communications derived from the tortured answers to questions put to other men yesterday. Newcomb said, quote, When the Vietnamese came in for an interrogation, they seemed to have a great deal of information. I totally feel everyone did his best to resist the torture, and I also know everyone gave information. End quote. Every day, the interrogation, torture, and sleep deprivation program continued, and every day, the North Vietnamese learned more. Prisoners began making up stories, first to hide as much detail as possible about the escape plans, and later to bring relief from the torture. Boss said, None of that shit works. The first thing they do, they just tell you they don't believe you. Yeah. You lie. You lie. They start working on you. And then they go, as soon as somebody would break, they go to the next room. And now they got something from somebody else to work on you with. And, you know, pretty And just making up all kind of shit. You know? And it's really tough to compare anything after a while. Nothing's real. So it just got deeper and more whirlpoolish. After more than a week in the whirlpool, Ba tried a new tactic to end the horror. He feigned insanity. He was alone with his interrogator. I always sat below him. I always saw uh, concrete block or some fucking thing 
on the floor below him. He's always on the table. Covered cloth on it. Higher than you are. It's okay, both. They wouldn't stick around when you went to bowl. They'd, want, they'd leave the room. Yeah. They didn't want to see you take a shit. Boss said he needed to take a shit. When the interrogator left the room, Boss smashed a ceramic water pot and started slashing himself with the shards. He kicked over the honey bucket, dumping his excrement across the floor. Quoting him, Guards come in. Big fight. I'm hollering. The guards jumped me, but I was so much bigger, I'm throwing them against the walls. End quote. The guards got Ba down to the floor and tied him to a cross of thick bamboo. The North Vietnamese had seen similar insanity tactics from other prisoners in the Hanoi camp system. They were not fooled. They blindfolded him and gagged him with a piece of unseen metal that tore cuts inside his mouth. They left him like that for perhaps a couple days, though he wasn't sure. He said, There was a lot of some asshole just kicked the shit out of me. I can hear him coming. Let's get ready for him. You know, it's probably some of the guys that was in the Donnybrook getting their revenge. Days later, Meyer heard Ba and Red Wilson speaking over the camp speakers. They had been tortured into recording apologies to the camp commander for their roles in the escape. Meyer said they all had to do the same thing, although some prisoners, including him, were forced to pen written apologies rather than record them. Like the recorded confessions, they were scripted by the NVA and the Americans were forced to copy them in their own hand. Meyer said, I thought for a while he was going to kill me because kept messing up uh, when I wrote the impression I'd mess it up and they'd have to clear it up and go get another one. Two weeks after Atterbury and Dramisi went over the wall, the seven remaining prisoners of Room 6 were returned to a shared cell in the annex. All of them had been broken. All had confessed their parts in the party. And none of them knew yet what happened to the party dolls. Chapter 24, Mad Dog Season Al Meyer said, quote, they brought us back together in one of the side rooms of the annex, probably about two weeks after the escape. I remember nobody had shaven. Everybody had a big bushy beard and looked pretty scuffy. Nobody had had a bath in that time. Bill Baugh was really down in the dumps at that time. He and Heiliger both felt badly because they were the ones that kept working on. End quote. Langell recalled, It seems to be it was my son's birthday, May 25th. They brought us back, still all chained up in leg irons. McCustion was incredulous that... They put us all back together. That's, I never did figure that out. Why they did that? Absolutely out of character. But in two weeks, the annex had changed. Meyer said, quote, When we came back to the annex, the room was bricked up. They bricked up the windows so you couldn't see out and we couldn't get any air in there. End quote. The North Vietnamese also bricked over the floor vents, not only further choking off any breezes or air circulation, but also ending the prisoner's ability to clear the room by listening at the vents for nearby guards or to flash hand signals through the vents to Americans outside the building. Room 5's Mike McGrath said they quickly became covered in heat rash because of the intense heat in their room. Outside the cells, the NVA also made it harder for a person to cross the central courtyard undetected. Meyer said, We couldn't see out, but some of the guys that had been out in the annex that they cut down a lot of trees. The ones that were left, they whitewashed them so nobody could hide behind them. 
Inside the cell, the NVA even put paper over the ceiling vents Dermisi had climbed through. The paper obviously wouldn't stop anyone from getting into the ceiling, but removing it would leave obvious proof. One day, Meyer said, the paper covering one vent fell free. A sudden fear that the guards would believe the Americans responsible and resume the torture quickly fell to logic. Meyer said, No way could we get through there. We were all in leg irons. They would remain in leg irons through the summer of 1969, a time that Baugh called Mad Dog Season. Meyer said, That was probably the, the worst summer that we had up there. There was a new regime at the zoo and annex. The old commander, an NBA officer called Cochise by the Americans, had been replaced. All of the remaining camp officers were demoted one rank, Boss said. The new commander soon was dubbed Goldfinger by the Americans because he had a front tooth of gold. For each American's participation in the escape, Goldfinger read the same sentence. Six months in leg irons, a reduction by half in their already meager food rations, and one bath a month at the height of summer, while spending more than 23 hours a day in their bricked-up, sweltering cell. The punishments extended to the other annex cells as well. After the Room 6 collaborators were broken, prisoners in every annex cell, primarily the SROs, were taken to the zoo, broken and given the same Goldfinger sentence of irons, half-rations, and monthly baths. The NVA removed the prisoners' bed pallets, forcing the Americans to sleep on the floor with just a rice mat for a cushion. McGrath said, quote, This allowed the rats to run over us instead of under us. The bed boards had been two inches off the floor, so the rats could mate and play games underneath us. End quote. Now the Americans slept among the vermin. So widespread were the punishments that the North Vietnamese ran out of leg irons. They did not have enough for every annex prisoner, so Ba and Red Wilson spent part of Mad Dog season chained together, each man with one ankle bound. Ba said he and his old friend had to shit, sleep, and bathe together. The SROs of the other annex cells suffered as much as the men in Room 6. Mike Brazelton, SRO of Room 1, wrote in a 2018 email, After the escape, the NVA took their time. A week or more later, they pulled me and the other SROs out of our rooms and put us in solitary confinement without mosquito netting and without bathing. End quote. Like the men of Room 6, they were in leg irons, held singly in cells throughout the zoo where they were abused for days before they were put in the ropes. Brazelton wrote, I was supposed to stay on my knees in the middle of the cell all day long. At night, I could hear the screams and moans from the other SROs that were being worked on ahead of me. At one point, Brazelton heard commotion on the other side of the brick wall that was the back of his cell. He was able to peek through some broken mortar between bricks. He wrote, I saw another prisoner I did not recognize being tortured. There was nothing I could do to help him. Brazelton knew his turn would come. Quoting him again, They kept me awake day and night, and I started to have hallucinations. I imagined that the cement floor was as soft as a mattress. The worst part was hearing my parents, sisters, and girlfriend talking in a nearby room. I tried to tell them to go home. I did not want them there. Navy Lieutenant Richard Skip Brunhaver was SRO of Room 4. He wrote to me, I was taken to the gatehouse of the zoo, where they had kept the cattle, and was stripped down and beaten with a fan belt for seven or eight days, three or four times per day, with ten to twelve lashes each time. 
I was made to sit on a stool for the entire time in heavy leg irons, and when I would fall off the stool, they would beat me on the shins with a bamboo cane. As a result of living in cow manure for days, Brunhaver contracted ringworm from his armpits to his knees. He asked for treatment several times before the NVA gave him strong iodine that peeled the skin off his genitals. When the NVA finally came for Brazelton, he wrote, I figured that the NVA had already gotten most of the information they wanted from my predecessors, but I had to resist anyway. Don't ever give them something for nothing was our motto. I barely remember what they did to me. I think it was a lot of whipping with a fan belt. They eventually told me what they thought was the truth, and after a while, I spit it back to them. As the interrogation and torture program ground through the prisoners of Room 6 into Room 5 and the SROs of the other cells, each broken man was returned to the annex. The constant movement of prisoners shuffled men from cell to cell throughout the summer. Langell said, Initially, I thought initially it was the same roommates that were involved, but it wasn't too long thereafter that they did some switching. Uh, they put Red in another room, and I ended up with some roommates that had been in Connie. Connie wasn't one of them. Brazelton and Brunhaver landed in a cell with other SROs, as well as Baugh and Wilson, who were still chained together. Over the sweltering summer, the Americans baked in their bricked-up cells, hobbled by irons and a subsistence diet. The only reprieve from the stifling stench of sweat in the honey buckets was one or two men's daily brief recess to empty the honey buckets. They no longer suffered the ropes and quizzes, but the NVA guards ensured that communications between cells was virtually impossible and continued their general harassment. Baugh said eventually most of the Room 6 prisoners were resettled in Annex Room 10. Wilson had retained both his snarky sense of humor and his enmity for Dramisi. McCushion and Heiliger both shared the same anecdote. McCushion said, This happened about a month after everything went down and the torture and the horrible crap. Maybe two months we're still sitting down how long we were hired. And one day, it was just kind of quiet, it was in the evening about bedtime, and Red said, you know what? It might have been worth it to get rid of the bastard. <laughs> this is totally shut up. Heiliger remembered, Red said it was worth it to get rid of them. On September 2, 1969, North Vietnamese leader Ho Chi Minh died, triggering days of national grief and mourning. Within weeks, the NVA treatment of the American prisoners improved noticeably. In early October, perhaps the 5th or 8th, according to some of the men, the leg irons they'd worn for more than four months were removed. In room 10, Ba and the others got a new roommate, someone they'd feared dead. You've been listening to The Party Dolls, the 10-episode podcast of the book by George Hayward. Next week in Episode 9, we learn the fates of John Dramisi and Conrad Troutman and delve into what may have happened to Ed Atterbury. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. You've been listening to The Party Dolls, the podcast version of the book by me, George Hayward. And this week, we've got a special guest following up the episode. I'm joined today by 
retired U.S. Navy captain, fighter pilot, former POW, John Michael, Mike McGrath. If you're not familiar with him, you should be if you're listening to this story. Mike has been an integral part of this entire project start to finish going back 25 years ago. He connected me to other POWs. He has been an invaluable resource of anything I've needed. He's put me in contact with many people over the years. He helped me secure rights to using some of the images from his own book, um, from his publisher in The Party Dolls, some of the drawings by him. And he also did the cover art for The Party Dolls. So I am very, very proud and honored to call him friend and very grateful uh, to have him with us this week. And Mike, you know, last week was the anniversary of the escape. 52 years ago, you guys were just starting into the shit with Mad Dog season. Uh, George, uh, thanks for the uh, compliments there, and, and I'm, I'm glad to be with you here, and uh, my memory still goes back 52 years. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you remember most about uh, about the escape in that time frame? Uh, well, the short version was it was uh, silly to even attempt it, and the second uh, point is a lot of us got hurt pretty bad that summer. Yep, that's true, that's true. You were, con- you were roommates with Connie Troutman. What can you tell us about him? You know, he's a key player in this story and certainly a very, uh, I think, a very heroic and strong leader. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I joined up with Conrad. He was one of my, he was my second roommate. And I was 27 years old and he was about 41 years old. So he was a little older than us. You know, the first I remember him, I thrown into a cell with him. It was dark. It was so narrow that only one person could stand up at a time. And here was this guy that's 41 years old that had been shot in the leg. He had an open bleeding wound in his leg. And another roommate had been shot in the head. He had an open bleeding wound in his head. I had broken bones and couldn't move. And uh, the fourth of us that were thrown in together, he'd been tortured so badly he couldn't move. So so I remember that Connie was uh, this older guy. My gosh, he was 41 years old. And, uh, and uh, shot down on an F-105. And we were, here we were in a prison in Hanoi. But what I remember most back as the time went on over the years, you, you found out he was deeply steeped in military tradition. Uh, he had joined at the end of, uh, joined the military, the Army Air Corps to fly airplanes at the end of World War II. Well, it was, uh, but he got out of high school. He, he worked in an airport uh, in, in junior and senior year, polishing airplanes and washing airplanes in exchange for the chance to get in an airplane and get a ride. So that was his salary, to get a ride in an airplane. So he loved aviation from the beginning, joined the uh, right out of high school, the, the Army Air Corps, and was in class in August of 1945 when the uh, war ended and all of a sudden they said, oh, you are no longer a prospective pilot. You're gonna become an enlisted man and you're sent to Alaska to work on an airfield. So uh, he started early in his military tradition, which continued on up to 1967 when I joined him. But uh, during those years, he was very proud that he kept every single uniform that he was ever issued in the military, and he had them all hanging in a closet uh, or in an attic in his house. Uh, it's just part of his pride in the military, and he prided himself. Well, he 
you've tried to follow every rule and every regulation and be neat and clean and, and professional and everything he did. So he was just very deeply steeped in the military, uh, more than the rest of us. The rest of us were, you know, happy-go-lucky fighter pilots, attack pilots, and uh, and uh, and we did we did a good job professionally. But he was a guy that took it more seriously than the rest of us. And as it turned out, he was the senior-ranking officer in the uh, in the zoo annex. It was a wing. The end. The real annex was across the. The wall out of out of contact with us, and we didn't know it at the time. There was another camp that we later made contact with, but uh, so I got to live with Connie for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's a, a interesting piece of the story. Is you and Connie were actually in room five, next door to room six, where Dramisi and Atterbury escaped out of. But with Connie being the, the SRO of the entire camp, and you were actually the note writer. The, the primary note writer for Room 5, you had a lot of close communication um, with Room 6 during the entire process, but at the same time, there was only so much you knew. There was only so much you could know. A lot that was happening on the other side of the wall was unknown to, to Connie or you or, or your roommates. Well, let me, yeah, kind of, let me fill in right there. This is the beginning of your story. So let's begin with the beginning of the annex. Uh, we we didn't uh, even know that the zoo existed, so we didn't name ourselves the Annex right away. But uh, uh, we're here. We were eight eight nine people in one room, and and uh, uh, we didn't start off in room five. We started off in room four. We got shifted to room five a little later. But uh, the first six months was tedious. We looking peeking out through cracks and keyholes and vents and just looking for some indication. Of another room, another cell, another POW, and it took us about six months to establish communication between our eight cell blocks, our eight rooms that you'll talk about, I'm sure. And mm-hmm. it took months and months and months of uh, patience of looking through it. Suddenly, you'd see a little flash of paper, and then you'd you'd put a stick of piece of paper through a keyhole, and you'd flash back, and then he'd flash back, and all of a sudden, you had a crude communication system. So it took, and then, you know, it might be, one of them was airmail. We had to throw a note tied to a rock over two walls and into another courtyard. We called that airmail. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might have to jerk on a telephone line in uh, in tap code or uh, flash a piece of paper through a keyhole in, in tap code. But little by little, we'd established communication between eight cell blocks. Uh, and uh, then we established who was the senior ranking officer in each room? Uh, of course, Connie, we knew he was data rank was years ahead of us. He was an Air Force captain in 03, and we were all uh, 02s and 03s, but of a lower rank. Uh, and one by one, we established who was the senior officer in each room. And uh, we established that in in uh, in Wilson's and uh, in Jermisi's room that Jermisi said he was the senior ranking officer. Now, this leads to a big part of your story. Who mm-hmm. was the real ranking officer? Yeah, very true. Very true. That becomes a, a key element in the entire story. And, you know, as even the other room six guys said from the start, that was kind of the setup for all the conflict that would just dog the entire, the, 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 the next year up until the escape and even then thereafter. That's true. Um, 
going back to the tap code, one of the like you pointed out, it took six months to establish contact just among the the, the eight cells in the annex. And, and even then, I'm, I, I don't think people can appreciate how slow and tedious just one single communication was. For instance, you mentioned using paper to flash through a keyhole. Describe like what a process like would that would be just to say hi to the next cell when you first found them. Well, yeah, it's uh, let me go back to uh, just a little before that establishing communication. When you're a prisoner of war, you find out that you're alone. Uh, nobody's going to help you. And uh, the first thing you want to do is see if somebody knows that you're alive. And in case you die, somebody can go back to your family and tell your family that, yes, I knew him in prison, uh, and here's what happened to your loved one. That's a big driving factor in psychology is, to, is that someone else knows that you're alive. Well, that can only happen with communication. Mm -hmm. And luckily, uh, one of the early POWs, Smitty Harris paid attention to a survival course given by a World War II POW, in which that World War II POW told about the TAP code that they used in the Stalag camps of Germany in World War II. And that was you could uh, use TAP code by tapping on water pipes or uh, tapping on walls. And what you did, you, or you organized the TAP code, the alphabet, in five groups of five. Leave out the letter K. Use a C as a substitute if you had to do a K. But anyways, A, B, C, D, E, first group, and then D, E, F, G, uh, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. So the letter C is one tap, followed by um, three taps. So here's C. Here is F, second group, first letter. And here's my name. MM, because we used uh, abbreviations for everything, keep it short, keep it fast. And uh, once you get used to it, it's a pretty rapid way of communicating. And we, between camps, we used the American Sign Language, the mute code. So people that could learn that, which I was one, uh, I became a communicator. And, uh, and I used the communication throughout my five years, eight months as a POW. As a, uh, I was always in the, in the communication link. So uh, it was sometimes it was slow, it was tedious, but we did establish communication. That was amazing how fast you did that. I, I appreciate that demonstration. I would imagine it would take a lot of time and a lot of ear training to, to be able to read and translate it that fast. Well, that's not no. It's just like the kids today. They they start uh, they start texting and pretty they get faster and faster and faster. And I, I I'm always amazed at the kids that text on their phones. And they use two thumbs <laughs> on each side of the thing. And those two thumbs are just going click, 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 click. And, <laughs> and, and uh, but they don't know it, but we claim uh, we invented texting. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, today was TD, tomorrow was TM, and yesterday is YD. That is TT. The word the is T, you know, and, and GBU is God bless you, and GN is good night, GM is good morning. So we use all the texting the kids use today, uh, 50 years ahead of them. That's hilarious. That's true too. So we just laugh about it today, but right. we didn't call it texting because we didn't have computers in those days. Right, right. I wonder if, so if the code originated with American POWs in World War II, I wonder if that was the actual origination or if it went even further back from there. 
Oh, who knows? Any idea? Yeah. Who knows? I I heard it goes back generations before World War II. You know, wow. Uh, wow. code could have been used clear back in the Civil War. Who knows? Right. Right. So this week, or I guess actually somewhere in this time frame, they escaped on May 10th, were recaptured May 11th, and Ed Atterbury's official uh, date of death is May 18th, but no one really knows the reality. It's somewhere in between, right? Um, can we talk about that for a minute? I know you didn't know Ed personally, but um, it's it's certainly an important topic. Um, well, really, the book's about, the whole thing is really about what happened to him, and and. I know it's a it's a passionate topic among the POW community. No, well, I never got to move with him or see him or know anything about him. He was just a name that I memorized. And uh, I will say that one of my roommates, my very first roommate, his name was Jerry Durant, uh, who later became my stockbroker in later years. A very brilliant guy, with good memory. Uh, we challenged each other to memorize all the names of all the POWs. So we started off with one, and then two, then five, then ten. And by the time we were finished in, in two years, we had 350 names, you know, that we could recite quickly to each other every morning and then add a new name. So, you know, start off Will Abitoa, Bob Abbott Alvarez, Atterbury Austin Bailey, Dirk Barbie, Barbie Burnett. We could run off 350 names real quickly, and Ed Atterbury was just one of the names in the A group. So we, we knew everybody by name, but we didn't get to live with everybody. So we didn't get to see him. We just memorized names, which are a lot of them are still with me today. And uh, you find out the power of the mind when you have nothing, no books, no paper, no pencil, nothing. You, uh, you learn that your mind is very powerful and that you can accomplish anything uh, through memory. So uh, Ed was next door. Now, I think it's important to, uh, to, I, I can, I can tell you about the the uh, the uh, what happened at at the sixth month through the next year as uh, forming the escape committee, and uh, if you'd like, I can explain that. Yes, please do. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's take it. So the first six months were just establishing communication, and and uh, just uh, I'll expound later on it. But from next door comes the code that says, oh. John Demisi is senior to the group next door. Well, in my room, I had Air Force pilots that served with and knew Jermisi uh, personally, and they knew Red Wilson personally. And uh, this is this is really strange, but these guys said, "Connie, Jermisi's not the senior ranking officer in that room. Red Wilson is. He's uh, that Red Wilson." Has an earlier date of rank, but he was passed over for major uh, like last year, and uh, and 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 Teresi was not. So on the on the rank structure, you you retained, you kept the rank, the official rank that which you were promoted to before shoot down. So even if you were on a promotion list with a future uh, promotion like to major, like uh, like Teresi uh, was. Uh, his official data rank was as a captain in 03. And then we went strictly by the date of promotion for seniority. Well, these guys, that, at least two in our room, argued with Connie and said, he's not. So Connie sent back an order and says, okay, I want to know who's the real senior ranking officer over there. And it comes back, it's John Jamezi. 
I was on a promotion list. And Conrad sits back and says, yeah, well, if you're if you a major of four, then you're senior to me. Take command of the camp. And then comes back another note from us. We were passing the note through a hole we drilled in a brick wall. And right. then we could plug the hole in the brick wall. So back and forth the notes go. Uh, and he says, well, I'm senior. And, and Conrad says, well, if you're senior to me, take command. And he says, well, I didn't pin it on. I'm not a, I'm not a major. So this went on, and, and and finally, I'll never forget this, that Conrad said, enough of this. I believe, I'll have to take the word of an officer. It's John Dermese. He says he's the senior ranking officer. I'll take his word for it. And, and that's the end of the discussion. I don't want you guys to discuss this anymore. I'll take the word of an officer that he's the senior ranking officer. Well. Wow. We all kind of said, well, okay, I told you so, and we'll keep, we keep quiet. Now, you'll have to put together the story, what went on in the other room between Red Wilson and John Dermese and his roommates, establishing and letting Dermese take control as a senior ranking officer, when he actually wasn't. Red Wilson was a senior ranking officer all along. They knew it, and what, what little I pieced together, uh, Red Wilson was a, you call him lazy fair. Just whatever happens, happens. No big deal to me. John, if you want to be senior ranking officer, go ahead. You can take it. I don't care. Uh, and, uh, and, and Dermese said, okay, if you don't care, I'm going to take over a senior ranking officer. You can probably expand on that from what you've talked to those roommates. But in our room, Conrad accepted him as a senior ranking officer. Now, that leads to an important point because about that time, the notes started coming over and from Jamezi kind of sending notes to Conrad. We think we should prepare for it. All the people in camp should prepare for an escape in case we have to escape. And, and part of the rationale is, what if they start killing us one by one and it becomes imperative that we escape to save our lives? We should have a plan and we should have a camp plan and we should have an individual room plan. And he said, I want to be the head of the escape committee for planning. Well, this kind of caught Conrad by surprise. And all of us are saying, you know, this is silly. <laughs> What's he talking about? We don't have a chance to escape. We don't have any outside help. And uh, what is going on? And he was pestering us. We should form an escape committee. It's important. And I, will, I want to form an escape committee over here. To, uh, in case we have to escape. Finally, in our room, with the senior ranking officer of the camp and us acting as his staff, uh, we kind of said, okay, just humor Dermese. Let him, let him form his own escape committee, his own room, and, and just humor him and stop him talking about it. And uh, so Conrad comes back. And, and, of course, I'm the note writer and writing these things down. And we pass it uh, to him and says, okay, John, you can inform your escape committee. Keep us informed. Now, let me back up here. These were double wall uh, insulation things. We couldn't tap efficiently through these walls. So right. we had to resort to notes, which were pretty clear. Okay. So Jamezi formed his escape committee. and uh, And that's kind of a background on 
how the escape committee was originally formed. That was really insightful, and that and that was really cool. The way you summarized what was happening in Room Six was pretty much as as I learned from all from you know all the men over there is basically came down to Red didn't care or didn't want the responsibility, and Dravisi clearly did. So they both said okay, and the rest of the room was kind of like, well, how did that happen? But okay, you know, as Mike McCushion once said, how we let him talk us into that, I'll never know. But they did, and, and, you know, obviously the rest is history. Tell me about your experience with Mad Dog Season after the escape. Oh, well, you've jumped ahead. My experience... Oh, we can go back if you want. If you want to go back to something else, we can go back. No, I don't think so. You'll find out that after the escape, immediately uh, people were jerked out within a day or so. The senior ranking officer of each room was jerked out, and we had no idea how to be... We uh, determined who that was. It turned out that Jermizi and Atterbury told him who the senior ranking officer was. Uh, they jerked him out one at a time, and and uh, and then individually if they didn't like their attitude. And there was a lot of beatings, a lot of uh, really rough treatment. And in my own case, I remember the uh, Conrad, and he was beaten to the point that he revealed uh, the job that each of us have. Well, my job in my room was the intelligence officer. And my job was to memorize everything, every detail we knew about the enemy and his dress, you know, what rank he, he wore on his hat or his lapel. And uh, every single detail I was to memorize so that I could uh, debrief it to military intelligence upon her eventual release, which could be years later. It turned right. out many years later. But that was my job as the intelligence officer. So when the V found out that I was the intelligence officer for the room, they kind of took it out on me that I had a key position and they were going to make me pay for it. And uh, I, I remember the day we were all lined up and the Vietnamese officer was walking in front of us and uh, he's looking us all in the eye and, look, and we tried to look straight ahead, not at him. And I broke my stare just, you know, passed him in his ear to momentarily look him eye to eye. And at that moment, he grabbed me, they pulled me out of line, pulled me into the courtyard, and then beat me uh, about 10 strokes with a, a fan belt on the, on the bare buttocks. So, so that really hurt, <laughs> caught my attention. And I huh. said, I'll never look him in the eye again. I learned right. quickly. Right. Wow, that's heavy shit, man. Um, can I rewind? There was something you mentioned earlier that really, really struck me, like hit me in the heart, actually, talking about when you're first captured and, and when you first make contact, your first thought was just to get your name out there so somebody would know you were alive. That's never a concept I ever really considered even in this entire project and I've tried so many times just emotionally to put myself where any of you would have been. And that's that's just heavy duty, just just wanting the world to know you're still alive. Yeah, it goes back to your family. And, and you know, your thoughts of your family really weigh heavily on a POW's mind. Uh, and it shifts it away from you. Yeah, you worry about yourself and you worry about your injuries and you worry about if you're going to die or live 
and that you have to accept your fate. But what really hurts is any thought that you have on your family because they don't know. They don't know if you're alive. They don't know if you're dead. They don't know if you're coming home. Your children don't know if they have a father. Then you thinking about it in a prison situation that you can't communicate, you can't tell them, you can't reassure them, and you can't assure them that you're going to care for them the rest of your life and and uh, in material and love uh, areas. So that thought, it really weighs heavily on your mind. In fact, it gets so heavy as the years go on that you have to purposely not think of your family. You have to purposely force your mind to think about something else. Maybe the ants crawling on the floor, or maybe you take a cockroach and you you uh, you you break a leg so you you can't run, and you leave the cockroach on the ant pile so that you you can watch for hours as the ants disassemble a cockroach and tear it away piece by piece. And, or you can watch the geckos on the ceiling, and uh, or you can watch the rats running around your room. Anything at all to take your mind off of your family, and because. When you think of your family, you can tears can well up in your eyes, and emotions can well up in your in your heart and your being as, as you worry about your family. And you're not worried about yourself because you're there, but that the, the pain of, of thinking of your family becomes so heavy that you can't do it. You have to get them out of your mind as, as much as you can. Wow. You, you just made me well up on, on that one. That that's what a heavy truth, man. That's something every person should take to heart. And Mike, I want to close this discussion on that note. Um, yeah, I, I want to go hug my kids right now. And, and I think you just said something that's so important about family and, and I want to, I want to end it on that. Um, anything else you want to throw out there though? before we say goodbye to the rest of the world and thanks for your time. No, but I want to thank you for taking this 20 plus year project on. Nobody else has written about it. Nobody talks about it. You have become a historian in writing about uh, one event in the prisons. And, uh, you know, I was in the position to be there. I was part of it but, uh, from the beginning to ending. And uh, I just want to thank you for, uh, your friendship with my roommate Bill Baugh, uh, who I later I lay, I lived with him after the escape. Right. But uh, I just want to thank you for putting it together because it's just an interesting part of our history as prisoners of war in a brutal prison. Uh, we call it the Hanoi Hilton. But uh, anyway, George, thank you. Thank, no, I'm, I'm humbled and honored to be the man to, to to tell it. I was humbled and honored to work for Bill Baugh. I had genuine love for that man, and I can't overstate the impact he had on my life in the short time I worked for him. I'm I'm humbled and honored to call you friend, Mike. So thank you for your time. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. We could have lunch again soon. Yes, we are. Yeah. Thanks much. And, uh, we'll talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.